Hey guys, this is Steve. Uh, episode number 90, can you believe it? Teresa Lamar Sarno is the deputy city manager of the city of Port St. Lucie. Uh, we've visited some of these subjects before, but I love her take. She really has a long history in CRAs, how CRAs work, how you can benefit from them, a county cooperative position with CRAs, very interesting. But also, we talked about a mental condition known as post trash crisis stress disorder, also known as PTSD, because as some of you listeners may recall, they had a trash crisis in a trash removal crisis in the city of Port St. Lucie. So she's going to come at it. We talked about the communication side. She's coming at and help us understand what they did, the steps they took operationally to mitigate that crisis, to move on to a new world. And really, it's a, it's a good, happy ending story. Stay with us for episode number 90. Greetings, I'm Steve Van Cor, and this is the FCCMA Podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. I'm your host, and each episode we interview a city or a county leader who's in a position to share interesting and useful insights into the operations of local government in the Sunshine State. You knew that. But what you may not know is if you have an idea for a guest or questions you'd like to ask or any suggestions Email me at svancor at vancorjones.com or, if hey, especially if I'm doing a terrible job, you can direct message FCCMA on Facebook. Let's get right into it. So our guest is Teresa Lamarsarno. She is the deputy city manager of the city of Port St. Lucie. We're going to cover two topics today. She is a, the master of land use planning, and she understands CRAs really well, and I know a lot of you care about redeveloping critical areas of your community, and she has some really good life experiences. And speaking of really good life experiences, I had the pleasure of working with her on some crisis communications in the city of Port St. Lucie. We've referenced it. We had Russ Blackburn on. We had other folks on talking about this. But I think this is a really good story from different perspectives about you had a real crisis in the city. We worked on it operationally and communication-wise. It came together. Happy, happy ending. Uh, Teresa, thanks for being on. Thank you for having me. So let, let's start with CRA. Tell a little bit about your background um, before we get into some of the projects. How did you come to be in, in basically 10 years doing CRA work? Yes. Um, well, I'm a graduate from UCF and immediately, um, you know, got a position at the Martin County and started out as a CRA planner. What was your degree in? Uh, political science. Oh. I have a master's and a bachelor's degree from UCF. And immediately started um, with the new CRA uh, plans of Martin County. They have seven CRAs and started working and learning about what a CRA is, which is important, and also what CRA projects and plans and how do we fund them and what, how that impacts neighborhoods. Real quick. So I'm a little surprised. I see um, Martin County as an uh, at least when you were there, early 2000s, an underdeveloped county, not dealing with large-scale urban problems. Uh, I was a little surprised when you said they have seven CRAs. Is, is that higher than normal for a county like Martin? It is unusual. I have not, in my experience, found another CRA, another county, I should say, that has seven separate CRAs. Usually it's one, maybe two. I yeah. think the most I've found is three. 
But um, they took their oldest neighborhoods, which were established in the 20s, um, that were blighted and needed to get some reinvestment. And so through a process of working with the Regional Planning Council and, of course, consultants that helped us, they developed seven different plans for the seven CRAs. Um, yeah, because just to, just to linger on this for a second, I would have envisioned if there was a county that had seven, I would think Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm Beach, Hillsborough, the bigger counties with large urban like little pockets, right? But you're, but but this is an interesting twist to me that it was neighborhood renovation, not so much, or, you know, blighted urban areas when you think of CRAs. So you land there now, you've got seven. Uh, for, the, for the, you know, some of our listeners are new at this. When you say, talk, tell me what is a CRA and what is the purpose of a CRA? Sure. CRAs are community redevelopment areas that were established that were established um, through a study, a blight study. They are governed by the Florida Statutes uh, 163, which co- considers them a special district. And that's really important because for any CRA, you have to establish a baseline in order to get tax increment funding. Many CRAs through TIF, which is tax increment funding, funds a lot of their projects. So you get a CRA plan, you establish your boundary, that starts your base year, and from that moment on, you start accruing dollars that you can leverage for um, the projects that are within the plan. So as a planner for, let's say, two CRAs, which is how I started, um, you had your, you know, projects that you were trying to get out the door, get them funded. Sometimes, you know, you saw grants. Sometimes you had enough money to get them started through, you know, some engineering drawings or con- concept plans. Um, but the TIF is really the critical part. So let me, so let me uh, CRAs for dummies, let me see if I could translate. What my understanding is you, you, you create a geographic zone. Mm-hmm. So it's it's you you draw yes. a line in the sand and say yep. in here, and any new tax dollars generated from increased property values or new projects, whatever, stays within for a certain period of time stays within the area to make you know hyper focused improvements on that. Correct. Uh, so that should, in theory, inspire private development to come in. Say, okay, I otherwise wouldn't have located here. But my tax dollars will stay right here to make road improvements, infrastructure improvements, drainage improvements, flooding improvements, et cetera. So I'm more likely to stay because knowing the government's committed to, to rebuilding it. And it's time limited, right? Yes, 30, 30 years. And you can, some, depending on the time that you establish your CRAs, you could add an additional 10, 10 years to that. Now, I know because we had talked to another person about uh, their CRAs that a lot of times the county doesn't like that because that revenue would have gone to the general fund. The counties and the counties are pretty lean as it is, and they tend to not like it. But in this case, Martin County allowed for seven, and it has to be approved by the county, right? Correct, yes. And so they allowed seven. So the county uh, administrator and and commission saw the value in this. Right, and and that is very unusual for a county to have that many uh, CRAs because they're essentially saying we're going to, not be able to keep all the general revenue. They, they had to shift. At, when I was there, it was 90% of that increment to the CRA. Oh, so you could set up a deal, say the county will get 10%, we'll keep 90 Okay. Uh, yeah. They, I think at the time it was 90%. I think they've gone down to 50%. And I think the state now has required it to be maybe 50% or something. But 
back then it was 90% of their increment that we were getting. Well, that's interesting. And, you know, I've, I've heard on one side of the equation was, well, we are within the county. So the improvements in this city are within the county. On the other side, the county is saying, yeah, but we have to provide extra ser- sheriff services. We have to provide extra services. And we're not getting any money to provide those extra services to that growing area. So it's really interesting that there was in Martin County at seven. So uh, did you, did, from that experience, do we have any success stories? Well, I, when I, we were just establishing the CRAs. So um, our baseline was started in when I started. So there probably I can't point to a actual success that you can touch and feel. But when I left there, I ended up going to the city of Stuart as their CRA administrator. And that CRA had been around um, significantly longer. So they had... Because these things take a long time. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you have to accrue dollars. Um, and so the city of Stuart CRA was around for probably 15 additional years, longer than the Martin County. And they had a nice coffer and we started, you know, doing a, a lot. They had done significant improvements to their downtown already. But I was able to, in the 10, 10 years time that I spent there, um, work on some really exciting projects, including the complete redesign of Colorado Avenue, which was about a one-mile corridor entering into the city of Stuart. So that was exciting. So before it was shallow, vacant, uh, high-speed thoroughfare, because in the 60s, we decided the number one goal was to move cars quickly. Yes. And then we realized that damaged local business, a damaged local uh, look and feel of a community. So you guys slow down the traffic, put in on-street parking, incentivize businesses to come back. And now anybody who's been to downtown Stewart, it's kind of like, we, we, we talk like little, these little areas, Dunedin, uh, Safety Harbor, uh, parts of uh, Tampa that have been renovated through CRA work. And now that the downtown Stewart is beautiful and no more vacancies. No more vacancies. And I think um, what the beautiful part of it is that um, we ended up doing tracking what we were doing. So uh, when we started, we tracked the property values and the investment and how many new jobs we received and what investment was put in from the moment that we started the design and it was finished to every year we looked at it. Um, and so with the investment that we received from you know people buying property and putting in, you know, several little shops or an office or, you know, a retail or coffee shop, we found for every dollar we invested, we got back $3 in return. And that was amazing. And I think that just speaks volumes to the work of redevelopment. So when you, when you do that, is there a time when you say, okay, the, now the area is good? Because let's face it, if I'm the CRA, I'm running the CRA, there's unlimited projects I would want. Oh, a beautiful downtown park. I want to go ahead and put this thing. Let's go get a beautiful statue of the, of the city's founder there, whatever. Uh, do these things ever... Because that was a criticism when the legislature changed the law that they never go away and all we're doing is building more and more government. And I, I thought it was an unnecessary criticism to take away a tool out of the tool chest. However, the criticism was they never go away. Uh, in your experience, do they... When, when, when mission accomplished, do they say, okay, we're going to abandon the CRA? Or do they kind of last... I believe the CRA in the city of Stuart, they, they received an extension for their CRAs and they're still working. I mean, it's a great tool for 
cities especially because mm-hmm. they get dollars from the county and also they put their own dollars in. Um, and they bring in private money. Right, yes. And so at get, the end of the day, it's if the county wants to do the extension, if the county sees value in it, there's no more conflict point because the county and the city both agree, hey, this is working, let's keep it going. Exactly. And you always have to continue polishing the stone. I mean, that's just part of the work is that there's there's always something to do, something to be done. You're updating CRA plans. It's a living and breathing document. So you're, you know, every four years you look at your plan and say, okay, what new projects should we think about? And we've done, you know, Colorado Avenue's done, but what else do we need to do? Um, I know recently their CRA was putting some public art on the sidewalks through some mosaics. So it's those additional things that make it more interesting and people come and enjoy and, and spend their dollars and support the retail and the commercial. Teresa, when you, went, when you went into this, did you realize the kind of impact you could have on people's lives? I mean, we, we talked offline about how cool that is. Never. I mean, I, I my first job out of college, I had to Google what a planner was because I had no idea what a planner did. Well, because you've got a degree in political science, exactly. which is so useful. Exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> have not used that degree, really. Your parents were like, what? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. you know yeah. what? As we bo- I mean, when you get a master's degree, you're learning how to learn. You're learning how to think. You're learning how to uh, go, and you probably did get a lot out of it. But the fact that you had to Google uh, what a planner is, a and story. now you're a professional planner. Uh, and, and planners do change lives because, you know, so the area you're in Port St. Lucie has a really interesting history of poor planning, right? Um, it was developed without oversight in the, what, the 60s and the 70s. They just gridded out the community, put in a bunch of properties, didn't do large scale planning, no parks, no areas for schools, no areas for people to gather uh, it was just houses, and you guys have been dealing with that ever since. Yes, and, you know, I, I tell my team, you know, we're always retrofitting, which is a challenge for any community when you have to um, retrofit our roads, our sewer, our stormwater, because it was not, the city was not prepared or planned thoughtfully. Um, and now we're all retrofitting all the time and um, trying to catch up, which is a challenge. When yeah, what a difference, because if you're, if you're the city planner 20 years ago in Parkland, Coconut Creek, Coral Springs, we you know those western Broward counties, they literally had a clean slate to start with, right? And so you look at how beautiful Coconut Creek is with the winding sidewalks. You look at Parkland, which is gorgeous, right? Uh, uh, Palm Beach Gardens is another area that, you know, grows up literally out of the swamp. Uh, but you come into another area that's already developed and developed poorly. Uh, what are some of the unique challenges to, to dealing with that? It's like, like turning around a battleship that's pointed in the wrong direction. Um, I think, you know, some of the challenges is, again, just retrofitting, having to go in and find where do you, um, you know, locate your commercial areas where there's enough space for you to attract a, a you know, a, large office headquarters if that was still a thing um so right. we don't we don't have we now didn't it's a have distribution that center, no, exactly. right. now it's a distri- so we on the east side which is the the older section of the city where mm-hmm. the gdc did plat out those eighty thousand lots um eighty thousand lots i'd never heard that number before As general development corporation came right. in and we still have approximately ten thousand left 
So um, now you go to the West Side where you are able to thoughtfully plan. Tradition and stuff tradition like that. Tradition yeah. and St. Lucie West and Southern Grove, which is now where we, that's our jobs corridor because we it's vacant. So it's Greenland where you can thoughtfully say, hey, we're going to do things differently and prepare for the future versus on the east side, which we're always, you know, we're looking at. So you get the daily. best of both worlds. We do. We get to we get to, you know, redevelop and retrofit things, but also get the opportunity to really design a great community, um, you know, on the west side and then also look at what opportunities do we have on the east side how does it how do we redevelop and grow the east side of the community to make sure that you know we're providing our residents a great place to live work and play yeah because you already have people living there driving on the roads there but you've got to rebuild you know while they're still doing it uh, it reminds me of that old joke of the uh, the mechanic uh, is working on a car and, and, and the surgeon is looking over his shoulder and the mechanic turns to him and says, uh, hey, uh, it's a lot like being a surgeon, isn't it? Uh, well, you know how complicated this is. And the surgeon says, well, yeah, but can we see you work on it while it's still running, right? <laughs> and in, in some regards, the eastern challenges in St. Lucie County, the, the engine still has to keep running. You can't ask everybody, like Robert Moses did in New York City in the, in the 60s and the 50s, like, everybody move, right. and I'm going to put in a park, I'm going to put in Grand Central Parkway, I'm going to do all this stuff, get the hell out of here. You can't do that. Right, no. Uh, well, not, you know, maybe someday. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, another good example of, uh, in St. Lucie County is... Somebody had the brilliant idea, and it was the technology at the time, to put a massive wastewater treatment plant right on Hutchinson Island, right? So up in Fort Pierce, you had this wastewater treatment plant. Now, back in the day, the, the solution to pollution was dilution. We realized, no, that doesn't work. Now, when you have, you know, 20-something million people living in the state, so you got to move that off the island. Now, that's going to create another uh, uh, clean slate there right. because you're moving. It's about 20 acres that is now a you know wastewater treatment plant moving way inland far right. away. But by the way, your planner's heart would love this project. Oh, it's a it's an exciting that would be a very exciting uh, project, and I'm excited for Fort Pierce yeah. and the county opening up I that think, land on the water. Right, I think it's, it'll be a great opportunity for them for but the their. logistics of you know it's one thing to build the plant west, but now you got to tank all the conveyance systems, all that water that was designed to flow east across the Union River Lagoon, uh, just the flow of the sewers, the pipes, where the water goes, the pumps, the logistics of doing something like that. Again, it's, it's uh, where people already are. I want to shift gears with you. Okay. Um, so we worked together uh, uh, on a crisis that the city of Port St. Lucie um, had and emerged from unscathed, except obviously a lot of people were pissed off because their trash wasn't getting picked up. Do the setup here. Tell us, tell what was going on. Sure. Um, so back in, um, let me, 20, late 2021, we started experiencing some challenges with our solid waste provider. And then going into spring of 2022, we were at a place where um, routes were not being finished and that not uh, trash. So trash is being left on the ground. Um, we have 80,000 um, homes that were being that are part of their routes and some routes were never touched. By the way, I don't think people realize how big the city, you know, when we think of cities, municipalities, we think of high rises and stuff. 
Uh, Port St. Lucie is what, the ninth largest city? The uh, seventh. Seventh largest in city. Population. In population. In, in the state mm-hmm. of Florida without a, without a core downtown. Correct. Going back yes. to the General Development exactly. Corporation. Yeah. Um, uh, it's massive, and it's a big, giant suburb. 121 I, square miles. I mean, I believe we're the third largest geographically. Um, so it, you know, it, that's it's a large city. Yeah. And so you have 80,000 people whose trash is not getting picked up. And anybody listening to this podcast is now leaning forward. Like, oh, what happened? So uh, I saw this from two perspectives, right? One was a communications challenge. How do you communicate to the public you're doing everything possible? Because they're pointing their fingers at you. Trash isn't being picked Mm up. Uh, but an operational problem. So you were in charge of operations. So what, did, what steps did you guys take to immediately start fixing this? Right. So we have a fantastic team over um, neighborhood services, public works, parks and rec. I mean, the entire city came together to help our residents. So part of our strategy was operationally was, OK, can people take their trash somewhere? Um, that was a no because that gets into all sorts of implications, but can they take other things somewhere? So um, like bulk waste, you know, your uh, chair that you're not using, your crib that you're not using, and you need to take it somewhere, or in recycling, can they take that somewhere? So once we figured out what, if, what people could take somewhere to drop it off because it wasn't getting picked up, um, we opened up a drop-off center. So that was one of the first things we did. And we said, okay, let's open up a drop-off center. Let's you know, have it with staff seven days a week, open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., uh, and have people come and drop off whatever they could to help with the unsightliness yeah, the of things of, that were... Right, so you guys started this kind of incremental operational changes yes. to try to relieve the problem. Um, absolutely. And then you suspended recycling at one point, yes, right? Yes, that was in the um, August we ended up suspending it because that was late summer was really the peak when... We had four weeks of trash, um, we estimate, of, uh, on the street. So then the next thing we did was where could we find garbage trucks? And we have CDL drivers you in our public words. You went to right. eBay and said, hey. <laughs> How can we get these? Um, and so we knew we had the drivers. We didn't have the helpers. So, and we didn't have the trucks. Well, let me, let me explain that for a second because I think part of the problem was And I'm going to take the side of the waste hauler for just a second, even though I think what they did was wrong. Um, That is my opinion. Um, The the problem here was the, the, the equipment they had was personnel intensive. It wasn't the automatic loaders. So in addition to a driver, you had to have people jumping off the back, picking up the cans, throwing it in the back. And we were hitting this COVID labor shortage. Uh, They claimed they couldn't find uh, workers to work. Um, And then so that caused this backlog of trucks just sitting at the depot, not picking up trash. Uh, So you guys start out and obviously the other part of it had to be the yelling and screaming. Hey, you're supposed to have 29 trucks out here every day. Where the hell are they? Right. But in addition to that, when they're not responding, you're doing this incremental. Give people an alternative to bring it to suspend uh, recycling. Uh, start uh, levying fines against the uh, the carrier. What other steps did you do? Um, so we ended up finding uh, through Big Truck Rental, uh, which is in Tampa. Here, is that really the to- name of the company? 
I yes. Big truck rental. Big truck rental. I love it. Name, probably can, named by the six-year-old son of the owner. I think it's you know you know what you're getting. <laughs> exactly. Right? Uh, we were able to secure um, through begging and pleading because apparently I learned a lot through this process. I've never dealt with a solid waste crisis of this type in my career, um, but that garbage trucks are very hard to find. Uh, they're not easy to, to buy, not easy to rent. So through begging and pleading and, and the big truck rental gave us six r- trucks to rent for six months. So we were able to slowly get ones, onesies and twosies until we got a total of six. And then what we were able to do was through our team, we were able to not only have our CDL drivers drive the trucks, we got some helpers, um, but... There was an interesting challenge there. We need to talk about this because you think, okay, I'll just call a temp service. Hey, I need the temp services are like, no, 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 no. And you talk about your wonderful team. And I got to tell you, everybody I have ever dealt with at the city of Port St. Lucie, I'm just going to give all the credit to Russ Blackburn. He does deserve it all. And, and, um, uh, but you had to turn to staff who had other jobs. Hey, Joe, how you doing today? Good. I just need a little favor. Can you show up at the truck depot and start hauling trash? Uh, but they did. And you got, you rotated staff. They were, they were able to do that. That is a really good example of a commitment to public service, truly, from the top all the way down to the, the bottom. The best of the best. Yeah, really, truly. You know, the best of the best. So that um, was a painful process because six trucks is is like a drop in the bucket. It was about a fifth of what was needed. <laughs> right. So, um, and we had a backlog. So we have a, a system that we use, one PSL, where I'm a resident. I'm very upset that my trash hasn't been picked up now for week two. And it was a two day a week service. Um, and I am on the list. And your list, your number 24 on the list we hope to get to you in and of course, two weeks. And when they get to you, they're going to do the whole block because if you didn't get picked up, the whole block didn't get picked up. And I'm sure we, and I know, as I recall, we had no rainstorms. We had no hot weather. Being in South Florida, we had neither of those things. And so you had literally trash flowing yeah. down the streets. You had maggots. You had all kinds of problems, which made the job even uglier. Yes. Uh, and so while you're putting pressure on the provider, you're suing them, you're spining them. They're done at this point. They know they're not going to win the renewal. So they're trying to save their jobs elsewhere. So the problem only escalates and you continue to get more trucks, right? Did you end up with nine total? We ended up with nine total. Um, We received some from our new provider, FCC, towards the August timeline. And um, so the peak of the crisis really was the summer. We started an RFP in March, an emergency RFP. Uh, We sent it out. We gave... Uh, solid waste providers, I believe it was 30 days to respond, which um, I heard from experts that said, you will never make this happen. This is, this will take a miracle for you to not only get solid waste providers to respond to this 30 day RFP, but mobilize and get 20 something trucks in four months. Um, but we had to, we, we took the risk and, and through Russ's leadership, you know, we did, did it and, um, we worked really quickly. We had a great procurement team, um, myself and Caroline Sturgis and finance led the negotiations. Um, and we ended up with a great provider that was ready to go early. They were, uh, they started early because they wanted to get a head start 
on getting everything cleaned up. Um, so their, their contract actually started in September. They were there about a week or two early, which was great. And at that point in time, we suspended recycling in July. So in July, we were no longer worrying about recycling because we couldn't. Right, right. Because it was just too much for us. It took um, FCC, our new provider, a good six weeks sure, to, to get just caught up. caught up. And they were working six days a week. And I learned something interesting. This is a good logistics thing. You know, so when trash is backed up, normally a route of, let's just say, you have a truck it can pick up 50 homes before it has to head back to the depot to dump. It's probably more like 150 homes. But when there's a week worth or two weeks worth of trash, that 150 homes drops to a 50 homes. And so you're spending more time back and forth unloading the truck. Uh, and so it's a, it's a problem, logistical problem that compounds. So they were smart to get in early. Um, two questions, because I haven't heard the aftermath we, we had talked in another show, so I won't repeat the communication strategy we engaged in, which was to make sure the public understood we're doing everything we can. We're, we're participant with you. We're on the same side of the ledger as you are. We're pissed. We're fixing things. Uh, we're suing them. We're fining them. We're holding their feet to the fire. And that changed the public opinion, I think, pretty dramatically. That and your poor mayor on social media for 8, 10, 12, 15 hours straight uh, she's still in counseling, I understand, for that. <laughs> all of us are. Oh, yeah, exactly. The PTSD <laughs> that we all have uh, um, over the, you know, and understandably, if I'm a resident and my trash isn't getting picked up, I too would be angry. And we we worked nonstop. And I think that the term is post-trash crisis <laughs> stress disorder, uh, which I think everybody on this podcast is, is terrified of. Um, so how are things going now? By the way, and one of the things was suing for failure to provide service. Is that lawsuit still going on? I believe that, yes, is my understanding. I think um, the last time I spoke to our litigation team, they were waiting on a date for a hearing. So I have not heard of the date yet, but I know um, Christmas time we were and I, and talking I think about that date. For what it's worth, I think pursuing that lawsuit is critical to send a message to other providers you can't screw with these cities and just walk away from a contract that you're not serving. You're going to have to pay if you don't honor your contract. I think that's 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 vital. And so things good now? Well, uh, we are very lucky. We have FCC, which is an, a tremendous provider. They went automatic. So they automatically they pick up They don't have trash, the labor issue, yeah. Right? They automatically pick up the recycling. Um, that's been just seamless, a great transition. We are still educating our public on a couple of major tweaks. because Point we the trash can the right way. <laughs> three feet apart. Um, your, their bulk days change from being weekly to one, monthly, and that's been a uh, sure. challenge, right? I'm a resident. I've lived in my house for 17 years. I take out my bulk every day you know, day on a Thursday every week. Well, now it's the second Thursday of the month. So we're educating, but we are making that change. And I think through education, that's going to stick. But um, FCC has been a great provider. They drive beautiful white trucks. Um, they pick up the trash and recycling and complete the route seamlessly. So we are very um, excited and lucky, we feel, to, to have them on board. Teresa. Only a deputy city manager would describe a trash truck as beautiful. But it's got to be because you have 
post-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> uh, last question. Okay. Tell us something cool about Port St. Lucie that we don't know. Oh, my gosh. Oh, you really put me up. Oh, something really cool that I've seen um, that we do really well is um, we do this Citizen Summit, which brings out, you know, 600 or 800 members of the public to ask them, one, what do you love about the city? And two, tell us where, you know, what you want us to do next. Um, I've worked in other organizations. One, we haven't done that in that way where everybody comes together, every department's there talking to the public. Um, so I just think that's really cool. The city residents love the city of Port St. Lucie um, and they show it and they show up and they tell us that. You know, what I love about that, and I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interject my opinion, my strong opinion on this. I think every city should do that. And I'll tell you why. Because of what's happening in the world of social media, where everything becomes negative and nasty and siloed very quickly, most of the feedback you get. Now, you guys heard the feedback in the trash you know, problem, but you, you also knew it and you saw it wasn't, wasn't working. So, but when the only opinions you get are through social media and people being angry, you get a misrepresentation of what's important in the community by bringing people out of their homes, out of their keyboards, and into a community setting to say, hey, what's going on? What's good? What's bad? Now, sometimes these things can devolve, but people are more likely to be civil and appropriate and give their honest opinions, not their clouded through this spectrum of what we see happening on uh, uh, the fractured social media we now have. I think it's critical of what you're doing, and it's good stuff. I have a special place in my heart for St. Lucie County. Uh, there's a lot of good, lot of good things going on. Uh, didn't start out well from a development point of view, but you guys are moving the ship in the right direction, and uh, we're going to miss Russ. I am just so sad but excited for Russ and his new chapter and his leadership and what he's provided me and the city and the employees and the residents is, you know, he's just an amazing city manager. And so I will I'm miss him terribly. Yeah, well, you also lost a county administrator who's, who's moved. I think that's a long boat. Howard, Howard yeah, him, yeah. And he, yeah, Howard so tipped him. Turnover yeah. can be hard, but it can also be refreshing, too. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, Teresa Lamar Sarno, uh, Deputy Manager of uh, the City of Port St. Lucie, thank you so much for being with us. Folks, this is Steve Vancouver, and this is the FCCMA Podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. If you have a question you'd like to submit or a future guest you would like to suggest, send me an email to svancore at vancorejones.com or message FCCMA on Facebook. Thanks for being with us.